After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's with a great pleasure that I introduce some of you, he will need no uh, introduction. Would you come up and join me here, Robert? Robert and I have become fast friends. We spent, uh, we've known, we go back a long time. Monday, really. Yes. But COVID <laughs> seems to have changed time. And we spent uh, uh, some time on the phone. But we actually met yep. at All Saints Dallas. Yep. Um, and uh, it's just great to have you with us. Some of you will know <laughs> Robert by reputation that he was... Um, former president of Baylor. Uh, his reputation speaks that he's a man of prayer. Uh, he's a visionary. You're a scholar. And every time I introduce him, I give him an extra bit of title. So I think we're at the right Reverend Robert Sloan. Because in many ways he does, though not yet an Anglican, but a brother in Christ. Um, he is like a bishop because he has led so many. Um, but the reason I wanted to invite him here to preach is because, and I told you this on the phone, uh, and after this I'll pray for you and let you do all the talking, um, is that uh, I've gotten to know his son-in-law, Brian, rather well. And, was, and I said, what's amazed me is the way that your son-in-law, Brian, speaks of you. Oh, thank you. And one day, if, when I have daughters-in-law, I want to have a relationship with them like you have with your son-in-law. And so, you know, accolades are great, achievements are great, but I think your family is your final exam. Mm. And you're certainly passed with Irena and Brian. I can't speak for the others. I don't really know them yet, but I'm sure the stories will follow. So that's why I want him to preach, is because you can't make this stuff up. You can't <laughs> fake this. And we all know leaders who uh, have great gifting, but not necessarily the greatest character. And this is a man of character and of gifting. And so let's pray as Robert comes to uh, preach thank to you. us. Thank you. I'm going to lay hands on you, whether you like it or not. There we go. Lord Jesus, thank you for Robert. Thank you for this man, for uh, the heart you've given him. Thank you for the gift that he is to so many. 
And we ask now, Lord, that you would, as you've done his whole career, put power onto his message and give us receptive ears to what you want to speak to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Dave, thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful to be here and be part of this fellowship. We, we have heard about St. Bart's from uh, Brian and Irena, and, um, and we did meet a number of years ago uh, through, through Philip, um, so it's good to be here. You know, um, I do think my other children and in-laws uh, speak well of me because I speak well of them. And, uh, and I, I'll tell you, if you look at this pew right here, uh, it's full of grandchildren and, uh, other, and children, and, and, that, and about half the pew behind, well, nearly all the pew behind as well. So in Baptist life, I have preached in Anglican churches before, so I'm not a, don't treat me like a complete stranger and foreigner here, or an alien. I am a sojourner, uh, but... Uh, in Baptist life years ago, when I was growing up, we had these revivals, and uh, you know, you'd have an evangelist and a musician. They would come and would have at least a week of services and special services, and they were particularly evangelistic and so on. But we would always have pack the pew night, and and whoever packed their pew could get a, usually an album from the musician. So I have packed a pew here. <laughs> So I've got an, got an old wax album somewhere you can. <laughs> so, uh, and, and the, the grandchildren, I think they all uh, have promised to pray for me during the service. So I, I feel particularly lifted up. The book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7, as you heard, was our, our reading for today. And um, it's, it may, it, as you listen to it, it may have surprised you if, if you listen to the to the verbiage that it's, that it's in chapter 7 because really most of the verbiage at the end of chapter 7 reminds us of chapter 21. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes and, and, their, and death shall be no more. Uh, that, is, uh, that is not only in chapter 21, but it's already anticipated and expressed here in, in uh, Revelation 7. It's because of, of the way the book of Revelation flows. It's, it's, not, it's not intended to be a kind of uh, history of the world that goes from one dark point in the past, uh, John is on the Isle of Patmos, uh, in, in a purely linear fashion all the way to the return of Christ and the resurrection. It certainly begins with John on the island of Patmos and it's in chapter one and chapters two and three, it's letters to the seven churches. Those are real churches in Asia Minor and, and these are probably also representative churches. There are seven of them, but they're churches under John's sort of uh, uh, apostolic leadership and he writes to them about real problems and tells them to anticipate that things are gonna get worse before they get better. The, the, the emperor cult, which is spreading, has already caused at least one martyrdom among the seven churches. And the book of Revelation tells us that, that John anticipates, anticipates more. But the way the book flows, uh, it then goes uh, from chapters two and three, the letters to the seven churches, uh, chapters four and five, there's a vision of heaven. The way the book flows though, is that it, it, uh, it, shows, it shows the overall picture numerous times. 
The overall picture is basically things are going to get worse. You must persevere. This, the central exhortation of the book of Revelation is you have to persevere. You have to be persistent in your faith. You have to be faithful unto death, as he tells the Christians at Smyrna, and I will give you the crown of life. So it's, it's this exhortation to, to persevere. But the pattern is, is pretty clear that, um, that, the, that the evil empire, sort of sounds like Star Wars, but it's, it's, it's for real. The evil empire, which in this case is Rome, is pictured with all kinds of grotesque imagery, a beast and, and so on. But this evil empire is, is going to persecute the people of God. But in the end, the evil empire, through its physical persecutions, its economic persecutions, the evil empire is going to come to an end. And this picture gets repeated over and over again. But God promises my people I will protect. He doesn't say he will protect us from all pain and all grief and affliction and suffering because the book of Revelation warns that that's going to, be, going to come and be handed out by the evil empire. By, by, in, this, in his case, though the empires change as time goes on, uh, and the book of Revelation anticipates that. In, in, in their case, it, it, it is Rome. And, and, though, and, and though the empire changes, this pattern is going to hold true. But God is going to protect and preserve his people. It's, it's, uh, it's as the words of Jesus, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Um, the church will suffer. There will be martyrdoms. And John tells them it's going to get worse and there'll be economic deprivation and other kinds of, of suffering, but God will preserve and protect his people. And that, that message gets, gets retained throughout. And the first cycle of that is, is, in, Revela is in chapters, uh, really, sort of six and seven and, and a little bit of eight, the first cycle. So chapters four uh, talks about God on his throne and he is worthy of worship because he's created all things. And it's, it's particularly using uh, Daniel 7. Chapter 5 begins that God on his throne has a book in his hand, and it's the book of the nations. It's the book of the destiny of the nations. It's the book based on Daniel 7. It, it's, the, it's the book of, of rescue for God's people. Now, they want these books of judgment to be opened so God can pass judgment against uh, the wicked empires and pass judgment in favor of his people. Um, so... But the, but the problem is, in chapter 5, God has this book in his hand. It's the book of destiny and of hope and of judgment uh, for the wicked and hope for God's people. But the book is sealed up. And that's not the way it was in Daniel chapter 7. The, the books were opened, and God was ready to pass judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High God who were being persecuted. But in this case, John, in this vision, sees that the book is sealed up. And as the seven seals are, are, are broken by the one who is worthy to take the book and break the seals, a, a worldwide search was conducted and they couldn't find anyone worthy to take the book and John began to cry. And then, then the angel says, don't cry because one has been found. The lion from the tribe of Judah is worthy to take the book and break the seals. And John sees in his vision a lamb. It was supposed to be a lion and it is a lion, but then he sees a lamb standing as if slain. And, of course, it's the, it's the crucified Jesus. Uh, he is victorious, however, because he has, he has horns coming out of his head, and, and he, he is powerful. He has conquered death. And he goes to the throne, and he takes the book, and he begins to break these seals. And the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse and, and conquest and power and imperialism and bloodshed and war and death and famine. 
And then the fifth seal is broken and the saints beneath the altar cry out, how long, O Lord, must we wait? These are people of God and this is their heart cry. When will you pass judgment in our favor? When, when will this, this, this affliction and time of tribulation, which John himself is sharing on the Isle of Patmos, he's in exile, when will it be over? And they're told they have to wait a little longer until the full number of their brethren who will experience persecution is completed. And then the sixth seal, and this is very interesting, the sixth seal, this is in chapter 6, the sixth seal is broken, and it's, honestly, it's, it's the very end. The sixth seal is broken, and there's an earthquake, and the stars fall from the heavens, and, and, the, and, the, and the moon is blotted out, and, and the moon turns blood red, and the, and the sun is, is, is dark, and, and the sky is split apart like a scroll. These are all the words in chapter 6 that refer to the very end. And the kings of the earth and the rich and, and the rich and the powerful and even the poor, and all, they, they, they cry out to the rocks and the hills, cover us and hide us for the great day of the, of the wrath of God and of the Lamb has come and who is able to stand. They're, they're crying out. It's, the great day of, of judgment is falling upon the, the wicked and they cry out. So again, it's sort of odd because we're in chapter 6. It's, we're at the very end. But then, as happens, when this pattern is repeated throughout the book of Revelation, we have these seals, then we have trumpets, then we have bowls. When this pattern is repeated, that God, through Christ, will, will pour out judgments upon the evil empires of the world, and he will ultimately rescue his people, there's a, there's a, a brief interlude. In chapter 7 is that, you might say, interlude. It's the interlude that tells us and reminds us that in the hour of affliction and suffering, in the hour of desperation, in the hour of tribulation that repeatedly sweeps across our world through various manifestations of the dragon, the evil empire, God's people have been sealed and protected and will be preserved. And so in chapter 7 there are there are angels who are at the four corners of the earth. The, the winds of judgment are going to blow across, of trouble are going to blow across the earth. But they hold back until the people of God are sealed. And the seal is based upon trust in, in the risen, crucified and risen Lord. And so, so there are angels that go forth. And it's under the language uh, of... Uh, of the tribes of Israel, but it's a very symbolic statement. There are 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from that tribe and 12 times 12 times 1,000 equals 144,000. And it's, it's well-known symbolism. It refers to the full number of the people of God because they're called the bondservants of my God. And in the book of Revelation, bondservants always means the followers of Christ. These are the bondservants of my God. Seal them upon their forehead. And then and then there's a second vision, and that was our reading for today, the second vision. John then says, and then he looked, and the 144,000, which symbolically means the full number of the people of God, the 144,000 have now turned into, as Dave used in his prayer, a numberless multitude, which no one can count out of the, out of the foundation of the, of, 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 the, of the Israelite people of God based upon the promises made to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and he would be the father ultimately of many nations and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Now it's a numberless multitude, thousands upon thousands from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are made one around the throne of God in the name 
of the crucified and risen lamb, the unity of the people of God. And then an angel, this happens often, there's a, to give us an interpretation, an angel says to John, who are they? John says, Lord, sir, you know, you tell me. And then the angel says, they are those who have come out of, doesn't mean they didn't experience it, but they've come out of this present evil age, the great tribulation, the hour of trouble which sweeps across the whole earth because of its fallenness and brokenness. It implodes, it brings destruction upon itself by its evil and wicked ways. And God himself allows this and even causes it on occasion for these, these judgments to fall. They are those who have come out of the, the great tribulation and the sun will beat down on them no more. It's, it's like a picture of the Exodus uh, when they're in the wilderness, in the desert, in the Judean desert, and the sun is baking them, but, but God puts a shadow, his cloud over them. Or, or they're in a time of drought. Isaiah 25, this, this passage in John, in John in Revelation 7 is based upon Isaiah 25, one of the greatest Old Testament passages used in the New Testament uh, ever. And it, it's like the people of God are suffering terrible desperation, heat stroke in the wilderness. But God gives them a cloud to cover them. Or, or God, in the midst of a, of a drought in the desert, causes a thunderstorm, a rain to come and cool them and quench them. And the sun doesn't beat down on them anymore. Neither will they suffer from this terrible oppressive heat anymore. And God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. They are dressed in white robes. They've been forgiven and purified and enabled to stand in the presence of the Lamb. And to use the citation from Isaiah 25 on which John 7 is based, and death is swallowed up in victory. Or Revelation 21, and death shall be no more. It's a highly symbolic way of talking about being in the presence of God, forgiven as the people of God, and experiencing the resurrection from the dead. Because when Revelation 21 says, death shall be no more, it, it doesn't only mean that there's no more dying. That's actually a minimalist way to think of it. It's true, there shall be no more dying. But there's more to the story than just dying. The New Testament makes this outrageous, and it's based on some Old Testament texts as well, but it's, it's profoundly based on the resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament makes this outrageous. It's almost like science fiction promise that not only will there be no more dying, but that the dead will be resurrected. And notice it's not just that the dead will have an everlasting life. That's promised, but you have to understand that in New Testament terms. It means an everlasting immortal life in a resurrection body. Death is conquered. And Revelation 20 says this when it talks about the resurrection from the dead. It, it says at the end, and death and Hades, death and Sheol gave up their dead and death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. Death is not just a clinical moment. 
of expir physical expiration. Death is a sphere, a realm, and it is, it is, it is sort of under, temporarily under the authority of the powers of darkness. Hebrews 2 refers to Christ conquering the devil, him who has the power of death. That is the devil. It's a realm. It's a sphere. In the Old Testament, and you get this as well in the New Testament, Sheol is the, in Hades, the realm of the dead. It's the place where the dead go down. It's a place where there is no rejoicing and no one gets to come back out of the realm of Sheol. It's a place of darkness and grief and crying and tears. It's a prison and it can't be defeated. My son Paul pointed out to me recently that in in Canaanite, uh, in Canaanite religion, the, the Canaanite god Baal one time wanted to rule all the, all the Canaanite gods. And so he wanted to go down. There's one Canaanite god that he, that he wanted to rule over, and particularly. And he tried to get all the gods to bow down to him in, in Canaanite religion. But there's this one god named Mot, M-O-T, Mot. And the word Mot is taken over into Hebrew. It's the name Death. And so he sent a messenger. He was a little bit concerned about this. Is Moat going to bow down to me? He sent a messenger down to, to Moat and, and said, are you going to bow down to me? And Moat says to the messenger, you go back to Baal and you tell him to come down here to me. And when he comes down here, I will lick him up. My tongue will lash and lick and gather him up and I'll swallow him into the realm of death. In Isaiah 25, when referring to the conquering power of the living God, says that one day God will take away the veil that covers all of humankind, and death itself that swallows everything up, death will be swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Then will come about the saying, when this mortal shall have put on immortality and this perishable shall put on imperishability, then will come about the fulfillment of the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. The resurrection of Jesus is a resurrection into an immortal body, not, not merely an ongoing life after death, but a powerful new creation, resurrection, immortal body like the body of Jesus that can never die again. Years ago, I did a retreat out at Laity Lodge and there were a couple of churches from around the state that came for this retreat working together. And I was... They asked me to do some things about the truthfulness of Christianity. And so I talked about the resurrection of Jesus, its historical claims, and, and that it was seen by, Christ was seen by eyewitnesses, the kinds of things that we celebrate, of course, on Easter. But I, I remember a young mother there, and I, I, I could call her name, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll use a substitute name for, for her son. But she stood up, and it's, you know, a group of 40 or 50 people. These were young couples. And she said, my son James, everybody in here prayed for him for a long time. But he died. And, 
it's the greatest grief I've ever known. And she said, this is what struck me. She said, people mean well. And they, they often came to me and said, it's okay, you'll have more children. And she said, and of course I wanted more children, and I've had more children, and I love my children. And then, she, but this is where her voice broke. She said, but I want James back. Another child, as wonderful as that child was, was going to be unique and celebrated for his or her own identity. But she wanted James back. And that's the promise, actually, that we're given. Not just that there's no more dying, but that death gives up its captives. The resurrection of Jesus means the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to be ignorant, fellow Christians, about those who are asleep, that we may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. The children that Jesus held and loved and blessed are in Christ. And the resurrection means immortal bodies, the recovery, restoration, and immortalization in a glorious body of those who have died in Christ. We were given a great promise. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. These first things have passed away. Behold, Scripture says, I'm making all things new. Lord, give us lives of hope and persistence. In the face of suffering, trouble, and grief, we trust you. We trust you that one day you'll wipe every tear from our eyes. One day, the glorious resurrection to imperishable bodies will take place for all those whom you have held and loved and kept all around the world who are saved by the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for this blessing and ask that by your spirit you would enable us to be more persistent and faithful toward you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.